Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Today, I'm joined by a friend of mine, Oz Katerji, a British-Lebanese conflict journalist, who is the reason why I even have my accreditation for the whole war thing. He was there in the beginning, he was there before me, and uh, yeah, I remember the time when my whole air flight was cancelled because the conflict started. And yeah, I was supposed to be there in the siege of Kiev, but he was there, and he was like fighting all through all this stuff. Hi, Oz. Nice to see you there, here on the show, finally, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. Thanks for having me on. I've been, of course, following you on Twitter a lot lately, and the first question was that, what are your thoughts on a podcast to invite me on lately as sort of an expert or something, but you probably know these guys better than I do. I'm talking, of course, about The Telegraph. What do you think about them? Uh, Yeah, I think particularly the podcast that they've done has been really informative. I think they've done some really good work. It's not easy to put out daily content uh, about a conflict, and they've done a really, really tremendous job at keeping the public informed, uh, both about the political side and the military side of of developments. So, yeah, I think they've done a really cracking job. Well, that's excellent because, you know, I've heard a lot of criticism about them, but can't give them any myself due to being laughing and everything. But a question there, the most important parts that I remember about you and how I even got to know you was in the very early war when, well, I did my explanations of the Putin's miserable excuses of, of this whole invasion. And then you were in Kiev at the time at the very siege of when it happened. And I remember you posting all the time about Kiev is still alive and you're alive and everything's happening. What would be your most memorable moment of, of that whole situation, that era? What was it like? Because I was there slightly after it ended. I was there when Bucha and Irpin was liberated, but you were gone at that point. You lived through the very hardest moments of it. So please share your experiences. Yeah, I mean, I arrived in Kiev on February the 14th, so 10 days before the invasion, and I stayed until May the 14th. Irpin and Bucha and the entire Kiev Oblast had already been liberated by this point. In fact, the, the Russians had pretty much withdrawn from the entire north of the country at that stage. It was a long three months, put it that way. I'm not sure if I have any particularly memorable points to point out, to pick out like that off the top of my head. I mean, obviously there were some memorable experiences in in what happened across those three months, but um, you're referring to, you know, the, the updates that I would give people. And, you know, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that sticks in my mind is they never really got to the center of Kiev and, and, you know, the constant question for the first few days, even a few weeks was this, this convoy is heading for you. It's coming for, for Kiev. It's going for the center. What, what are the people they're going to do? You know, that kind of thing. And they never, thankfully never arrived. And that was thanks to the, the sacrifice and determination and bravery of the Ukrainian resistance and, and how they, you know, liberated their capital and defended their capital. And I think that that is a story that um, should rightfully be told for generations to come. Yeah, well, in my case, again, I was there in the 23rd when I finished my 
piece for Foreign Policy magazine about the nations. And then I immediately bought tickets from 1st to 7th of March, you know, to Kiev. The war started earlier than I had anticipated. But you, you showed remarkable resilience there. However, another question that I want to touch your Lebanese side upon is the fact that I've been getting comments from the global south as now is popular to say, I suppose I'm living in Latvia up there, in the north. I don't really feel like I belong in any such qualification of global south, global north, although I am very north, but it's not what they mean by this anyways. I want to ask, why are there so many people from the global south that are in favor of Putin for some reason? What, what do they see in this? What, what do they gain from this? Is this truly about hatred for the United States of America or what is this about? You have, you have roots there. You could probably explain this much better than I could. I'm Lebanese and, and Lebanon is, is sort of a split society, you know, not going back further than the civil war even. There are people that want to take the country closer to the West and there are people that want to take the country closer to Iran. So I don't think I have any unique particular perspective on the global South in, in general, maybe across the Middle East, but... but um, I can answer your question to an extent because obviously I, I've been covering this topic for a long time. So I have a lot of communication with people all around the world that, that get in contact with me, that send me tweets and, and so on. And I haven't really felt any kind of ideological affinity for Putin from, you know, random people that message me from these parts of the world. But there is a sort of sense of anti-Americanism that that kind of makes people support whoever seems to be standing up to America. You know, I think a lot of people treat these conflicts like games, like a sports a sports match or something. I personally wouldn't encourage um, too many people to read into the kind of general view here and there in, around the world. I, I, I think you're in a hiding to nothing for that. I think it's much more important to focus on how various governments are reacting. And really, there isn't widespread support for Russia between the various global governments. They have only really a handful of major supporters, and that's, you know, Iran, Bashar al-Assad. These are the people that, that Russia can rely on reliably in the UN. A lot of Russia's traditional allies have taken to abstaining in, in votes, which is in and of itself indicative of the fact that while it's true to say that the world hasn't responded with the same zeal that, say, you know, the United States, Britain, France has uh, in supplying Ukraine weaponry and di diplomatic and humanitarian and economic assistance. It is also true to say that there aren't that many people, nations, I should say, standing with Russia, supplying Russia with arms or, you know, acting as an ally in the same way that Ukraine has. More traditional partners have chosen to take a more, you know, supposedly neutral role in the conflict. Now, some of them are also, you know, using clandestine measures to try and support Russia. Um, I don't think anyone should be under any illusions, but I just mean Russia's struggling for popularity in the world and i think that this idea of the, of like support in the global south I, I i don't think that the global south is helpful as a as a kind of term to understand you know what the view political views of someone in you know peru is compared to what the political view of someone in lebanon is compared to what the political view of someone in madagascar is i i just think that these are just you know relatively useless uh, ways of, uh, of understanding uh, global politics. Well, thank you, sir. You have understood my question perfectly then, because I fully agree with you. Putting people into some sort of boxes and stereotypes is just we do naturally, and they more often than not tend to just be terribly wrong, because, you know, it's always been a thing. I also think there's, there's the sort of fact that most people don't follow this conflict day in, day out, and they don't know what they're talking about. And I know people that are journalists who have been journalists their entire lives who, you know, go to every conference and do every report of every conference. And some of these people are some of the stupidest people you've ever met in your life who themselves don't have the political nails to understand this conflict. I'm, I'm frequently shocked at some of the um, standards of comment that passes in my industry. I'll leave it at that. I won't need to go into further, further detail. 
But I just think... Oh, no, you can... I, I, no, I just, I just mean, if you want to know accurately what someone thinks, they have to be informed. And if they're not informed, they, their opinion's completely useless. So I think a lot of this is lots of completely useless opinions that have no bearing on anything and probably don't need to be thought about too much. There are many more important things to worry about than the opinion of people who aren't informed enough on this conflict for their opinion to be meaningful in any way. That was the thing. Um, I want to talk about this one, one, one specific issue. Because again, on, on uh, our good old friends on the Telegraph, right? I, they make a really good job. But I, at one point, I truly felt, I felt pushed between rock and a hard place, if I can use that expression, since I was, I was invited there to speak about my article on the prison culture of the Soviet Union and modern-day Russia and all this, what Prigozhin is doing. And then there was this British guy who had been there in Russia, as, as he claimed, for a lot of time, and he's been living in Roblyovka and been going around to the front lines with a translator and everything. And he posed this feeling of authority that, that he knew everything better than I did, even though I speak the language and I've, you know, mingled there with people. Th that is sometimes still this, I don't know, ar arrogance, I would say. They are really respectable people, really smart ones, but there is this sense that, at least that I get sometimes from my Western colleagues, that you know, they think that they know better than I do about my own region and everything. Oh, look, I mean, two things on that are quite complicated things, so I'll go slowly. Of course, yeah. The first is that um, I can't speak to the to the Telegraph episode because I don't know who the journalist was in question. But uh, I'd rather not mention him because I respect him as a colleague, obviously. That's fine. I just I should point out that there are some very experienced, seasoned correspondents who are living in Moscow, who've been reporting on Putin for a very, 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 very long time, probably longer than I've been alive in, in, in some cases. And some of these very, very, very serious, very credible, very respectable journalists absolutely did not believe Putin was going to invade Ukraine, right? That's something that I will say off the bat. That's something that, that there are some very famous journalists that have done this and yeah, I have not covered Russia my entire professional career. I don't speak Russian. I don't speak Ukrainian. I don't speak any Slavic languages. Um, my introduction to Russia was, you know, learning about politics as a student here and there, about contemporary politics. Yeltsin, Chechnya, the fall of the Berlin Wall, these were things that, that, that I learned as a student. But my actual real focus professionally on Russia didn't come until the Syrian civil war and Russia's involvement in that, which really brought my attention to Putin and, and, and Putin's methods for warfare. So I've only been really covering Russia, Russia's involvement in conflict for 10 years now. Uh, you know, it wasn't when they went in in 2015, it was earlier, it was the the initial diplomatic support for Assad that had me start to take a professional interest in the country. So for someone like me who, who I've never been to Moscow, you know, I don't have any contacts in the Kremlin, uh, but I, I knew clear as day that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. I, I felt it in my, in my gut. I, I had the evidence of, of the open source work and that had been done to show the buildup on the border. And I'm no military expert, but I know you don't have hundreds of thousands of troops with full, you know, battalion-sized groups ready to go with blood banks and mobile criminals. I know you don't do that unless you're going for it. And the difference between me and those people is having covered what Russia did in Syria. I absolutely believed Putin was one of the most evil human beings that's ever lived. And I don't mean that like, I'm not trying to exaggerate. He goes down as, as you know, he, he probably won't ever get the body count of, of, of a Hitler or a Stalin even, but, but he has hundreds of thousands of lives, if not more by this point, that, he, that are directly dead today because of his decisions, his military and political decisions. And this has been going back for, for decades. These are directly at his door. He, he's a monster. He's a, he's a psychopath. He's a mass murderer. And 
I knew all of this and I saw him building his military up and I thought, this psychopath mass murderer wants to invade Ukraine. He doesn't see Ukraine as legitimate. They, they're constantly making ethnic slurs about Ukrainians. I know enough about sectarianism being Lebanese, you know, and, and you hear some of this kind of, well, oh, but the Russians and Ukrainians are brotherly people. And like, I'm sorry, if you haven't come from a country with a civil war, yeah, if, 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 if people from the same country can butcher each other, I don't want to hear you talk to me about two different countries, two different peoples with two different languages and say that there's no possible way that they could ever come to, to blows. It's just a fanciful world. And I don't know what made some of these journalists who are living in Moscow who, who clearly were talking to their sources in the Kremlin who were saying, look, don't be ridiculous. We're not going to invade Ukraine, you know, and, and they're reporting the stuff and, and they're believing the stuff that they're reporting. Effectively, what they did, and I, I don't mean to, to disrespect what they do for a living. I really don't uh, because they have sources that they've built over many years and, and they're real legitimate sources, but they also believed those sources and those sources were either wrong or lying. And as a result, they effectively carried water for the Kremlin's disinformation campaign before the invasion. And I think, I think they all have to take stock of that professionally and audit the reasons why that happened. And I, I don't think I've seen anywhere near enough of that from my own perspective. Now, it's very easy for me to, to sit here and, and say that from my high tower, as it were, because I got it right. But I didn't get it right, you know, by coincidence. It wasn't like I was incidentally right. I assessed the evidence. And the difference is, is people had sources that they relied on, and I had empirical evidence. And they had that same evidence, but for some reason, they didn't think the open source stuff was more credible than the denials they were hearing in Moscow. Again, I can't give you the pathology behind that, or they, they'd have to explain that uh, for themselves. But I just want to say that um, whatever their attitude towards you is, um, and I don't know if this person did that or not, and I, I'm just making a much, much broader point Whatever attitude towards you, you, you have received from some people that are, have been studying the region their entire lives and probably do speak Russian even, I just think that even in those circumstances, they could have been so catastrophically, horrifically wrong about something that is so seismic, the most important thing that's happened in the entire region since the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, there is no bigger story. 9-11 is the last story of the same magnitude of what we're talking about happening here. This is a global event, and it's a global event that was predictable. It was a predictable global event that happened over the course of several years, and people did not see it coming. They did not take Putin as a serious threat, and I think that was a catastrophic miscalculation by, and it's, it's very easy to criticize journalists, but they're not the ones most culpable. It's the, it's the politicians in Western capitals, Obama going back even further, you know, uh, Merkel, Hollande, you know, Macron, whoever, like all of these guys have uh, the British government, Cameron, Boris Johnson, just kind of, just this view of Russia that you know, no matter what happens, we can we can sort something out. We can get around the table and, and, and hash out a deal. That's point one. I know I said I'd be quite long. Point two is much shorter, is that I am a guest in, in Ukraine. I'm a guest in, in this part of the world. I don't speak the language. I don't have the same cultural knowledge that I have, you know, the Middle East. So, but, you know, having... Being Middle Eastern and seeing every single reporter turn up to the Middle East without any of the cultural knowledge, who doesn't speak the language, and see them make careers out of careers out of careers, you know, reporting on the Middle East without ever bothering them. You know, I'm very used to that attitude. You know, I'm very used to, to someone who doesn't speak the language getting a job over me who does speak the language. This is something that I experienced many years in my, in my career that made me decide that being freelance was, was probably the best option. The way I feel about it, having had that experience, I, I am a lot more respectful, I think, of um, 
local knowledge. You know, I can't do what I do without getting local knowledge to supplement my reporting. And I require building relationships with trust and faith. And, and you know, and, and these things take time. And, you know, I know that my reporting isn't going to be as culturally aware as that of someone who was born and raised here and speaks the language and lives and breathes the politics and culture here. So I think that I'm very conscious of that. I'm mindful of that in my reporting. Um, but again, I'm, I am not a successful 45-year-old British you know, foreign correspondent who's been publishing in a broadsheet for the past 30 years. I, you know, I, I don't have the, that, that kind of pedigree. So I'm, it's very easy for me to criticize as that kind of startup freelance journalist who uh, insults everyone and doesn't really give a shit what happens uh, either way. It's easier for me to criticize like that. But yeah, I, I just think to round it up, I think that a lot of very, very, very experienced people got it very, very wrong. And uh, I think some of them should um, reflect on the reasons why they got it wrong and um, maybe do some more listening to the people that got it right and why they got it right. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Well, Oz, I do have to say you are underplaying your successes quite a bit. You are truly a great journalist with, with over 200,000 followers on Twitter, for, for starters, if, if that's a metric. I, I don't know how to measure it anyways. I mean, look, I, I'll say that I, I don't think 200,000 followers on Twitter is a metric worth my career. All it has done, and I have to, I have to understand that someone who only has like 1,000 followers will look at me like, what are you talking about? But getting to this point, the only difference between me and someone with 1,000 followers is I just have a bigger platform, right? It's still about what you use that platform for and what you can do with that platform. I'm still as limited as, as, as anyone else has. I'm just likely to get more retweets. And if I ask for help on a story, I'm more likely to find someone that says yes. But really, the difference between us is, is negligible. And there are people who have, you know, 300 followers who have much, much, much more financially successful careers than I've had, to put it that way. So uh, I just think that, um, yeah, don't pay too much attention to the amount of followers. Really, it, it, the quality of information is much more important. Yeah, I, I figured that one out since, you know, I got, I got banned myself due to my conflicts with uh, one American, Michael Tracy. Ah. His trolls sicked, sicked, uh, he sicked his trolls at me and they mass reported my previous account. So that was a bit of a trouble, but I would rather not talk about that human slime on this show, which is full of, with honorable men only, as you understand. I, I find Michael Tracy hilarious, to be honest with you, because he's really bad at propaganda. Like he's, he's really terrible at it. 
and uh, and he does make me laugh because I don't know. You, you kind of have to find some of these people to laugh at, and I find it very easy to to make fun of him. So, you know, that that is true. But like, that's the thing. I can't push myself to even despise him because again, he reminds me of a human slime. It's just insanity. But one thing that I want to ask you more is that um, yeah, I've also been there with the Paul Syrian conflict. Since Bashar al-Assad has been propped up by Putin for such a long time, and I remember the first time that I mentioned that um, that Putin had used chemical weapons against the Syrians out there, and, and no one believed me on my show, and I got so many emails telling me that, oh no, it can't be true. In this, this day and age, someone's using chemical weapons? And that was just... Uh, it was just insane. That was in response to the February destruction of Wagner Group. This is how I, by the way, got into conflict with Wagner Group. This is the thing. I kind of think that we truly need to take this into perspective of how how this Ukraine war, it's not, it hasn't grown out of nowhere. Putin's been doing these conflicts and propping up people for such a long time. How do you get people to listen to you about the Syria war? Because for me, it was really, really difficult when I, when I spoke about this and just weird. People don't listen to me about Syria. I suppose I built my social media profile off talking about Syria and making it my focus. And I built some trust and, and credibility in that in that field. But people who this Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. People who aren't really in the field don't look at me in that same way. I think I ruffle a lot of feathers uh, with, my, with my style, with my combative style. But that's because I'm I'm tired of atrocity denial, and, and and I am genuinely outraged and offended when I'm accused of making fabricating a massacre. You know that 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 bothers me on on so many levels. It's not something that I can just walk away from. It's not a situation where like, oh, they've they've said that I'm making up a gas attack because I'm paid by the intelligence services or whatever crazed idea that they have in their head. Um, it's not just an attack on me. And I don't, if it was, I could laugh it off. You know, people attack me all the time and it's whatever. It doesn't make a difference. When they accuse you of creating or covering up or something, a, a war crime, it's, yeah, you know, the reasons I got into this job in the first place was to expose war criminals uh, to to fight for justice for their victims. So yeah, it pisses me off. I get very, 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 very angry, very angry about that, and I fight. And because I fight, I built up a following, and then over enough years, that following has allowed me to uh, cover another conflict with the same intensity, and that's Ukraine. I wish Syria was the last conflict I'd ever had to cover, you know? People think that I'm someone that kind of enjoys war or, you know, gets a kick out of... I, I would rather there was no war. I would, I would, I would, rather, I would rather be reporting on Putin's tri tribunal at The Hague. That's what I'd love to be reporting on. But, but that's, that's... Yeah, that, that's the thing. That's the thing. Oh, there are people who just come on to me because, like, I'm planning my next trip to Ukraine right now and um, there are people who would come on and just accuse me of, you know, you, you, you just go to the front lines for the kicks. And, and let me tell, tell you, dear listeners, no one goes to the front lines for the kicks. It, 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 it does not exist there. It's a different attitude. Well, I'll also be fair. It's, it's, it's not easy to get to the front lines. Ukrainians aren't like, yeah, you're pressed. Just go on through. 
They don't want journalists running up and down the front line. It makes the job harder. It's it's tough out here. I'm currently in Kiev and I'm doing some other work, so I'm not doing anything to do with the front line. So, you know, life can be forgiven for thinking life is normal at times here. It gets interrupted when there's an air raid siren and a, a strike that, that kills a, a small child. And then you remember exactly that you're, you're in a state of war. It's not something you can really afford to forget. But um, look, people... And there are there are cowboys out here. Don't get me wrong. There are people that come out here with with you know delusions of grandeur. There are people that come out here to raise money for themselves and try, you know there are bad actors here. Don't get me wrong, but the vast majority of people here are not here for fame and glory. They're here for a cause, um, and you, you you don't you don't go to front lines for fun. You just don't, and 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 the people that do end up dead really quickly, or end up on the first flight home. You know, it. Yeah, that's look. It's kind of hard to speak to everyone, anyone else about this, but I've, I was talking to our colleague David out there, and it's kind of like you get confused about how quickly the human mind can adapt to these situations. It's kind of like first time when when the bombings happened when I was I was in Mikolaev, it was like, oh wow, I have to go to the air raid shelter. Fourth time was like, oh no, the Russians are going to bomb in two hours. I, you know, can't go to sleep right now. I better work. The thing is that I've understood the most about this whole war is that it's not going to end when the bullets stop firing. It's the scars that I've seen on people, and well, to be frank, on myself, and I'm pretty sure you have them as well. It's um, it's nothing pretty, nothing pretty at all. And and you kind of have to move move through this, and you kind of are you kind of become amazed at how these people on the front lines, be it Syria or Ukraine or, or you know, anywhere where, where you're fighting for your own country, how they just get their motivation, how they can just sleep sleep through horrific incidents, truly, truly sad stuff and, and, and how they can keep going. I, I, always, I always am amazed by the Ukrainian fighting spirit every time I visit them. So look, look I'll be honest, um, like human beings have a limit of how much they can deal with without rest. And if you, if you breach that limit, you're, you're, you're gone as a human being. You know, you're, you're, you're staring off into the distance, PTSD, wrecked brain. You're no use in a f- combat situation. Human beings can only endure so much. And the, the soldiers aren't immune from this. They're not, they're not machines. And to, to achieve that kind of constant level of, you know, constant level of effort in this war requires rotation. And, and you have to rotate your troops away from the front line, take them to the back line, rotate fresh troops into that front line again. Otherwise, your soldiers are not going to be combat capable. Um, and the same is true for journalists and humanitarians, and medics, NGO workers, we're all human. We all have a limit and to be able to rest and recuperate. And uh, yeah, so so I, I I want your listeners to understand that um, war does take its toll on everyone, absolutely everyone. There's no one. There is no one that can survive a war without um, some kind of mental attrition on their part and the only way to deal with that is to rest and leave a conflict zone as far as get to as far to, to safety as possible to recover and before going back and, and and that's what's happening you know people are not living on front lines for two three years they're they're, they're able to rotate out i'm not so sure that the russians are able to rotate as much and i think that russian morale is really 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 sapped as a result of that so you know i think it's really important to remember that it's not just the way that ukraine is fighting this war uh, that ukraine cares for the the fortunes and lives of its own men and russia really doesn't care about the lives of anyone that is that is very true of course uh, <laughs> i have a bet by the way with a with an interesting podcaster, Martyr Mate, you might have heard of him, Daryl Cooper. Yeah, yeah he, he for some reason has decided to take a pro Russia stance in this conflict. But he was a bit arrogant about this whole situation. And I've mentioned this on previous shows, just reminding maybe you haven't heard of this. So I made a bet with him and he allowed his fans to 
you know, set the odds. So seven to one, he took seven to one. I bet $200. As this war ends, I have, I'm going to have $1,400 to go and, uh, you know, make a party in Odessa. You are, of course, invited. Thank you. I'm, I'm not familiar with this podcaster, but I, I definitely, and look, I know the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been going quite slowly, but your safe money is on, is on Ukraine to win this war decisively. Decisively, I don't just mean some broken, you know, Minsk three, Minsk four agreement. I mean, Ukraine is going to win this war decisively. And I, I believe that not because I'm hooked up on copium, but because I believe the balance has, uh, the military power has swung firmly in Ukraine's favor. Um, this remains dependent on a few things. The most important is, is the, the international coalition holding. You know, we need, we need Macron and British government and Schultz and Biden, particularly Biden. We need Biden to win the next election because, you know, 2025 is when the next presidential term starts, January 2025. There's no guarantee that Ukraine's won this war by then. But if it hasn't, and it's dealing with the Trump presidency, which, you know, it's still, it's still within the realms of possibility. Uh, I, I, I'm not convinced it's a certainty by any means, or even a, a probability but it is a it does exist within the realms of possibility, and I think that Ukraine needs to be very cognizant of that fact. Um, you know, this war will be won not just through Ukrainian metal, but through Western steel, and and that steel needs to keep coming because if it doesn't, uh, Ukraine doesn't have the industrial or financial power that that Russia has. So yeah, it's it's dependent on. Con- continuous support from its partners and allies. And with that support, Ukraine can win this war and will win this war. I agree with you 100%. I mean, that's what I put my money on because, look, I'm from Latvia myself. I have relatives in Ukraine and I've lost people in this war. And I, I know the worst case scenario. And that's the thing which which probably I think a lot of people in the West don't understand. If we allow Russia to just go unchecked, they just won't stop in Ukraine. They have Transnistria. They have... Heck, Poland even, and my country, Latvia as well, which is why, by the way, today our prime minister announced that we'll be giving all of our uh, helicopter fleet, all of it, to Ukraine, which has been increased in later years. And I think that this is an important fact for everyone to understand that it's not, at least over here in these parts, this is not a war that Ukraine fights against Russia. This is a war that Ukraine is fighting for all of us here and, and the the impact of their actions cannot be underestimated. We need to help Ukraine win this war. We, we just have to, because otherwise the consequences would be just devastating to all of Eastern Europe, I think. I, I don't think that uh, many people in the privileged West, particularly the left of the British left, the Irish left, the American left, have any real understanding of how catastrophic Russian victory would be for Eastern Europeans, the Baltic states, um, Moldova, Georgia, the knock-on consequences of this would be unimaginable, unimaginable. It would completely shift the center of power in Europe away from Western Europe towards Russia. It's as simple as that. And if Russia was able to withstand, you know, the arsenal of a, a modern arsenal being sent to Ukraine, it's still not... Uh, winning psychologically, politically, diplomatically, economically, the consequences of that would ripple on for generations to come long, long, long after Putin uh, was dead. So I, I think it's it's understandable that the Baltic states in particular feel so strongly with Ukraine. Poland also feels uh, particularly strongly about this. But, um, you know, more help is needed. It's still not enough. So, yeah, Ukraine is, for all the the words of solidarity and support, Ukraine is still fighting alone. And it might have the, you know, that that meme from uh, Lord of the Rings, you have my sword, you have my axe, you have my bow. And then, you know, Frodo (laughs) takes all their weapons and goes off on his own. (laughs) It's like, thanks, guys. Yeah, that's that's that, sadly. You know, it's that that's Ukraine. 
they're in a very, very serious situation and there's no way to get around that. We can make light of it in, in discussion, but the reality is I'm not so sure that the decision that, that Ukraine should fight this alone was the morally correct one. I understand the the talk about the need for de-escalation, you know, the need to not have a confrontation between the West and Russia, but Russia already sees this as a confrontation between the West and Russia. And we're doing, we're letting Ukraine fight and die alone for its freedom because we're afraid of nuclear war and it's um which is never going to happen by the way well i mean look i don't i don't want to dismiss the idea that avoiding nuclear confrontation isn't a wise and rational thing to do it is and i agree that it is but um i also don't think that because a country has nuclear weapons that means that it should be able to do what it wants with impunity i mean that we, we i live in britain and we have nuclear weapons and that doesn't mean we get to do what we want with impunity america lost in vietnam and it didn't you know it had nuclear weapons and didn't get to do what it wanted with impunity i think that losing a conflict um is 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 something that nuclear armed states have to have to live with and um really there couldn't be a worse situation for the world than largest or second largest nuclear arsenal in the world to fall into the hands of a man who is you know no more grounded in reality than kim jong-un is you know this is it's a very very worrying time but i i think i think if i was a western leader i i would have done much more than, than what, what's already been done to be honest with you because i see this as an ex- existential threat for all of europe existential now it's not existential tomorrow when russia could potentially win it's existential now i i i can hear the the pain in your voice and you probably can hear the the same in mine because we've been there and we've been following for this for a while but i think it's our job i suppose then to explain this to people because sometimes you know there are nights where i feel truly alone and in fact scared because if this goes wrong and thankfully, it seems that like it won't, because even like my latest episode was about covering the whole Putin's meeting with with war correspondents, as they call them in Russia, right? That that just showed how incompetent and stupid they intend to be. Um, but yeah, you know, at least here, you see, my grandma lived through World War Two. Grandparents, all of them did, and I remember that one of them was conscripted into the Legion. Because at that point, had Baltics didn't have a choice. So one of my guys, and he was just building roads. So my road-building grandpa always hung, hung out with my Red Army fighting grandpa who had been wounded. And the thing that I drank for is so that there would never ever be a war like that one. The, the point where Russia shifted away from let's not have a war again like this, let us forget the horrors, to we can repeat this. I think that at that point... Everyone should have been scared, I think. Yeah, I mean, look, Russia has been a, you know, a fascist country for a lot longer than people are willing to admit. Fascism isn't something that happens overnight. It's, it's like democracy. It's a process. You don't wake up in a fascist society. It happens slowly over time. Well, according to them, we, my, me and you are fascists. Yeah, like, I mean, you know. A Lebanese man and Latvian man. We are we are both fascists, of course. <laughs> to be honest, there are there are plenty of Lebanese fascists, so it's not a it's not that it's not that a an uncommon occurrence. But the point is, I just wanted to add some dark comedy to this because this is getting depressing. Yeah, but I mean, look, I'm firmly a liberal, so the idea same here. I, the, the idea that I could be a fascist is it's just it's it's not it's not borne out by the reality of my politics so if people want to call me a fascist it's that's not something that bothers me at all because it's like calling me uh, a green-skinned alien wait you're not or it's like calling me you know yeah it's like calling me a, a submarine or an attack helicopter like it just i i'm not one so it doesn't make a difference to me either way the, the wider point is that uh russian fascism has been uh, a much bigger problem than uh, the Western world was willing to acknowledge until it was too late. And finally, finally, the world is is reacting uh, more robustly towards Russian fascism. But I don't think it's too little too late, but I do think a lot of lives could have been saved 
had this confrontation been made sooner, it, it shouldn't have got to the point that Crimea was annexed in the first place. This far, no further should have been the line. Um, but 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 it wasn't it wasn't thus, and here we are today. I I I watch and listen to Igor Girkin closely. He's my favorite nemesis. Uh, that's my last question here, and then you know I'll, I I would like to answer you this and give some positive words for my listeners here. I watch Igor Girkin. He is the most fun, funnest guys I know. I uh, actually trademarked Club of Angry Patriots and their logo in the EU, you know, just so he wouldn't have any money and he would have some troubles. Like, what do you think about what do you think about him and his political ambitions? Because that group, that the far right of Putin. They have been very active lately. They truly are preparing for a civil war themselves inside of Russia. Do you think that's legit? If if you could answer that one, we'd be good. And please give us, give, give some good words for for our audience. Girkin, and more important than Girkin is uh, Prigozhin. I think the Girkin Prigozhin question is a very interesting one, and one that you know I'm going to be the first to throw my hands up and say I just don't know enough about Russia to be able to tell you what I think could potentially happen or even why these two men in particular are allowed to say whatever they want without being arrested or even worse, killed. It's very difficult. I, I will be honest and say this is a gap in my knowledge. I don't know Russia well enough to be able to explain these these guys and their, their presence and their place in Russian society. It seems to me that Putin is untouchable and that he can kill anyone he wants and that he can, you know, prevent anyone from criticizing him if he wants to. Um, so they presumably act with a, an air of impunity or authority uh, given to them by, by Putin. I don't know to what end. I, I don't know. A civil war in Russia, I mean, it's not unthinkable, but I don't think that losing the war in Ukraine will be the end of Putin. I, I hope it is. I'd love, I'd love it to be the case. I know a lot of people disagree and they see that if Putin loses Crimea, that, that, that's it. That's a death sentence for Putin. But I mean, look, we, we've seen examples in Russian history of losing wars, you know, being the death sentence for, for regimes. But um, I think we've seen enough examples in history of, of, of losing wars and, 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 you know, Saddam Hussein lost the first Gulf War and he was, you know, untouchable in, in Iraq for many years to come. I don't think that this is a cut and shut case where once Putin loses this war, it's game over for him and then, then Russia falls apart into a civil war. I just don't think that, I don't think that those predictions are, again, I'm, I'm saying the first to admit that I don't have the expertise to to tell you one way or the other. My just personal feeling is that um, I don't think there is a precedent here that we can rely on. I wouldn't be surprised if Putin was overthrown after losing the war, but at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if Putin stays in power and, in fact, makes Russia a far more fascist and dangerous place for Russians after losing that war. So I think that's possible to come to. Well, like I always say, there are two fates for Russia at, this, at the end of this. It's either uh, breaking up or becoming world's largest North Korea. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the second option might have to be a real issue, a real thing that people consider. Because I'll tell you one thing, when Russia loses this war, I absolutely would protest on the streets if they tried to lift sanctions after that. The sanctions remain. You know, what Russia has done needs to be paid for for generations. This is this is a generational problem, and it's not a case of oh we got our asses kicked. Please lift sanctions now. This is not this is not the case. Um, we will bleed Russia uh, to pay for Ukraine, and and just because they've lost a war doesn't mean that they deserve sanctions relief. The moment Russia wants sanctions relief will be when it makes democratic reforms. And at that point, and at that point, when they make democratic reforms, they will fall apart instantly. Because well, but 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 I, I just I just want to make it clear to people that yes, yes. that you know you might not like capitalism, right? But the way capitalism works is if you want to trade with the rest of the world, then that has to be based on trust and faith, you know, to a certain degree. I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's far from perfect. In fact, it's corrupt in very many cases. But we have one power 
one power in liberal democracies, and that's to sanction the piss out of out of people, enemies, nations that that break international law, that break international norms, commit mass murder, atrocities, war crimes, systematic crimes against humanity. We have one tool in our arsenal to deal with them, and that's sanctions. And that's pretty much it. And if Russians think that losing this war means that things are going to go back to normal, they're very, very wrong. They're very wrong. Um, you know, there is no normality. There's no new normal for Russia uh, without democratic reforms. North Korea, Syria, Iran, these are the countries that Russia will, will closely resemble uh, post, post-conflict if, if Putin remains untouched. Um, I wanted to end on something positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I've said this all along, but I, I think Ukraine is going to win this war. I agree. I think that although the counteroffensive is going slowly, I think people should hold the faith. You know, I think they should uh, be encouraged by Ukraine's strength and Ukraine's uh, abilities going forward. And I think that um, not only once this war is over, I think that Ukraine will join us in in the partnership of nations of Europe and NATO, and will will be one of the strongest allies of of the Western world and be a thriving liberal democracy for many years to come. That's that's my hope, but it's also what I think is currently the most likely scenario based on current political and military situation. That could change. I hope it doesn't. But for now, I think that your your audience have reasons to be positive about this war, no matter how hard it, it, it's been, no matter how hard it's still going to be, no matter how hard it goes, that there is victory at the end of this. And that's what the Ukrainians are fighting for. Berimohi, victory. And they will see it. Of course they will. I truly believe that. Slava Ukraine. And, uh, and Az, thank you for coming on to the show. I hope to see you in Kiev in, I don't know, sometime early July. If you're still there, I would gladly have a beer to you in uh, the, what was this? Near Kreshatik, there is this Tata restaurant. You know, know, you know the one I'm talking about, the, the Muhastir or something. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I do, but I, I will take you up on your offer. That sounds great. Okay. Thanks for having me on. That sounds great. And uh, to all of my listeners... Have a great day, and as usual, happiness is mandatory. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.